0: Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. And thank you for joining me once again. Today we speak to an old friend of Content Group, someone who has been deep into the digital transformation space For many, many years, you'd have to call him a pioneer, and we'll actually go through a little bit of that conversation to get ourselves started. But today, Craig Tomler is now the Senior Digital Marketing Manager at Accenture, and I want to talk to him about that as well. But Craig's got 25 years experience in the digital industry and is certainly passionate about boosting organisational performance through the use of digital strategies and tools. Previously, he's managed and created startup companies and served in a variety of senior roles in both the government and private sector. He's led national digital projects, he's designed digital and physical products, he's hosted stakeholder engagement initiatives, and he's certainly coordinated the design and the development of hundreds of websites. He's also trained thousands of people globally on how to be effective with social media. And he joins me in the content group studios here in Canberra, Australia. Craig, thanks very much for joining me on GovComps. Oh, thank you very much, David. And certainly you are a pioneer. You're someone who, in those very early days of digital transformation, that you were there talking about it, and in many ways, almost single-handedly in those early days. You were really out in front of the whole issue well in advance of now the hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands have sort of come after you. What was it that you realised early that made you go so hard and were so passionate about it so early? Well, there certainly weren't so very many
1: of us who were really uh, involved and deeply engaged in the digital scene. And I guess what what really got me involved in it was uh, a a trip over to the UK back in 1992-93 when I actually uh, went and spent some time living over there. And that was the first time I got to encounter the internet. Um, And I saw very early on that it would kind of change everything. You know, at the time, if I wanted to, you know, call my family, it was a long-distance call, it was expensive, it was slow. The best form of communication was postcards. I could just see with this idea of the internet... Instant global communication, instant e-commerce, uh, the ability over time to show more and more graphical content and that sort of thing. And and back then I could just say, wow, this is going to change everything mm. and I want to be involved with that. Um, and when I got back to Australia, the first thing I did was sort of start embedding myself into what was starting to happen in Australia around that digital scene. Um, one of the first five ISPs in the country I got involved with and from there went into a, a, a content a development company. Um, and we were trying to sell people websites before people knew what websites were. So very early days, but I could just see there was so much potential to transform the way um, that we live, that we work, and the way we interact with other people. Um, and it was just such a great opportunity to get on top of. Mm.
0: But looking back now, I'd be interested in your views, knowing what you know now and working obviously in a Uh, distinguished companies such as Accenture who are so big and um, got got so much uh, coverage and so much depth of capability, knowing what you know now and looking back, what are the things that have surprised you? What's different that has happened that you maybe didn't think was going to happen? Okay,
1: that's a a really good question. I have to have a little bit of think about that. I think definitely I saw the potential for the many-to-many communication, the video, the the e-commerce, all of that side of things. Some of the things I didn't recognise at the time, and I think a lot of organisations are still coming to grip with, is how important the data would be becoming to actually underpin the way organisations operate. Um, And this stretches through uh, marketing and communications, it stretches into other areas of business, and just the notion that you can uh, collect this instant feedback, build up these massive databases full of usable information, and then use that data in applied ways to actually improve your product offerings. I think that was something that really wasn't
0: uh, clear to me or to many other people uh, back in the early days. That first party data question is, a, is a, quite an interesting one. You know, Sir Martin S- uh, Sorrell, who is uh, the leader of WPP and left WPP but has now started his own firm, S4 is very much focused on this notion of first party data and the use of first party data as a as it moves into the application around content creation and distribution but then also around programmatic and and how you you know use first party data to to influence that this podcast is directed towards a government audience and i often wonder about the challenges for government in the use of data the standards Of a private sector company as opposed to the government are quite different so what are your views on that and how is it that government can uh, more effectively use that first party data to design better services create better programs uh, design better policies How, how 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 do they deal with that very difficult question and then how do they use that to to improve the outcomes for citizens
1: yeah, I, I think in terms of government, like firstly, government, I think, is it really in a sweet spot with data? Um, but it I don't think it's always understood exactly how to leverage that sweet spot to its advantage because the government already has access to an awful lot of data about citizens. Um, it collects it on an ongoing basis. Yeah. And within you know various privacy restrictions and so on, it can still understand a lot of the behaviours and patterns of citizens in order to customise the service it provides to them. But often there's a lot of tentativeness about how to use that data or when to use it. Uh, And uh, I think that's often because while private sector companies are driven by numbers, their bottom line, their sales, their uh, you know the number of people they actually speak to can be boiled down through formulas into the number of sales they're going to get. And they do a lot of their predictions and a lot of their forward projections based on saying if we reach X number of people, Y number will buy, and therefore this is how much money we'll make. But with government... Government doesn't run on the numbers. Government runs more on the heart. They're more about how do we ensure that we provide the best possible service for people, but they don't always put the numbers behind what service looks like, nor do they often track themselves by, you know, 500,000 people access this service. Um, And I think that's one of the challenges is that government has to learn a lot of the things that the commercial sector has internalised since at least the 1960s. When, you know, the whole idea of data-driven numbers Mm. came in, particularly around TV and radio, when they started being able to keep those metrics, Mm. and they started to use computers for more than things like HR and finance, Mm. but for actually crunching, you know, product numbers and and, um, Mm. sales numbers. But I think government has been more focused on uh, using numbers as evidence in policy, but not for shaping the services and then driving the outcomes. And that's a difference in way of thinking that I think is
0: just taking some time to filter through the public service. And then how then do you take on that challenge of building the capability to be able to do the work? What things are involved in building that capability and translating that capability that perhaps, as you've identified, is available in the private sector? but how do you get it to move across and build it into capability in the public sector?
1: Yeah, well, I think we're seeing some of that going on. Like the, the New South Wales government has done a lot of really good work um, in harnessing data and topics around education um, in its transport sport sort of portfolio and in other areas. And they're starting to really use the numbers to drive the business. Mm. And I think in, in terms of that... I think it really starts with the local governments and the state governments first because they're more directly involved with that day-to-day service provision. But we're also seeing, you know, some exceptional use of of data by organisations such as the ATO um, who, of course, understands every year they collect a massive amount of data on people and then they have to process it and turn it around actually quite quickly. But through that, they've learned how to handle the data and how to start using it. And they're starting to move their services more and more towards uh, customized, uh, easy-to-use services that people can transact very quickly.
0: Mm. What about this issue of privacy, though, where citizens, you know, may be happy to give their data to the local shopping center because they might get a coupon or a discount, but they certainly don't want to give it to the government because they don't want to be, you know, spied upon. Uh, by big brother, even though in fact, you know, the use of that data may help with the better design of, you know, public health facilities, for example, or better roads or or other things.
1: Yeah. And and I think things like um, some of the backlash against my health record sort of is an example of how some of that comes about. Um, I think in government terms, like firstly, I think Privacy needs to be understood as a transaction rather than an absolute, as people are willing to give up parts of their privacy in return for certain services or access to convenience. Hmm. Uh, and so you know, if you want to get a bit of data from somebody, then offer them something in return. And then if you can validate that that's a fair transaction and people are happy with it, then they will give you data in return for you know, whatever you're offering them. Government's been very good at having a stick around if you don't do the right thing, if you don't give them what they need, then they will come down on you in various ways. But there is no real carrot for if you give us this information, we will then be able to do these things for you. So it's very, very difficult in a government sense to actually have that conversation to say, well, we want this extra piece of data from you. And the person saying, well, what do I get in return? And the government says, well, nothing, <laughs> but we're going to force you to give it to us. And then the person is, okay, well, you know, if I have to give it to you, I have to give it to you, but there's no value transaction. So I'm going to be unhappy about this and I'm going to resist you in other ways. Okay. Um,
0: what and- sort of incentives could government provide? because it's easy for a private sector company to be able to provide some sort of incentive, but what could government do to encourage people other than explain uh, to people the benefits, you know, the use of nudge and other behavioural economic theories that sort of bring people along through encouragement?
1: Yeah, well, I think, I think government has a lot of things it can offer. Like, if you look at a more uh, a local or state level, one of the things, if somebody has a particularly good driving record why not give them um, certain credits or discounts on uh, their license renewal or other things? Um, Because if they've demonstrated good behavior over a long period of time, then why not reward that? Because they're obviously people you want on the roads, they're safer than other people, and therefore they're going to improve the safety of the overall roads if you actually make it easier for them or cheaper for them to actually continue driving. Um, And there's lots of examples around payments that people make to government where you can say, well, if you give us these pieces of information, then what we can do is discount that in various ways. So you could say that in some ways it allows some people to get more benefit than others but there's ways to structure it so that anybody can access those benefits Mm. if they behave in the appropriate in the appropriate way and if they don't behave appropriately as now you can still penalize them and you know they have various things like dhs can charge you uh, additional fees and interest if you're not providing them the information you need Um, And they're just ways that government can provide that, either through customer service or through discounts or other things. And I think that would change the equation to a large degree, because suddenly, um, provided that was accessible to everyone, and it wasn't to a particular group or, or cohort, then it becomes something where we say, well, you know, we appreciate that your privacy has value. And if you're able to give up a little bit of it so that we can do these things at a national scale, such as better manage healthcare, better understand the our education system and how to improve it, then we can give you some specific advantages um, and that we're happy to extend that to your whole
0: community if they all give us that information. Hmm. Okay. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a very good idea. I, I wonder about the sophistication, though, of being able to make those judgments and how difficult that would be. But I suppose it's all there. The systems are there. It's just making that leap, isn't it, to a, a different kind of a... Uh, reward system for people.
1: Well, that's right. Like we have decades of designing frequent flyer programs and reward programs and those sort of programs. So all of that knowledge can apply to this Mm. to design something that works. And this would be – I picture this more at a whole of government level rather Mm. than agency by agency level Mm. because there are specific transactions with different agencies that people do that may or may not benefit from this. Mm. But overall, if you can offer somebody a return – uh, on one side for a transaction they do on a different side, then it gives them an ability to actually have a, uh, a more comfortable experience with government and be more willing to engage in, in the transactions of privacy that are going on all the time.
0: Now, this podcast is dedicated to the work of people in uh, government communication, you know, policymakers who are trying to understand better ways to explain policy or, or program or the comms teams who are working with their policy colleagues. So what's the relevance of data to, to this particular cohort? And how can data better help the storytellers in government to tell a better story and to distribute a better story?
1: Yeah, I think this is an area where, where data is becoming very, very important in marketing. And I think um, if uh, without without speaking with an accenture hat-on specifically but if you look at some of the the purchases that Accenture has made around the world um, in terms of, of the monkeys and droga 5 and so on um, and the sorts of assets we' We're picking up as marketing companies to work with the technology engine is that there's a greater appreciation that technology can drive marketing further than the ideas of the past could. And this is starting to really challenge a lot of the marketing fraternity around the world, a lot of the digital agencies that that focused on on the communication side are having to focus more and more on the data side as well, because the data is driving the communications and shaping it in real time to give better outcomes as those communications and information campaigns roll out. Mm. I think this is something that government hasn't gotten on top of yet in this country to a great deal and i think a lot of the processes that we still have in government sort of count against that
0: because yeah. um, it but it's also th- those purchases that you're talking about and the integrations and you know the deloitte digitals and the accentures and the pwcs okay. and the others th- this is relatively new or well, your deloitte digital's been around for a number of years and obviously accenture has been in this space but those bigger that the the, the the bigger moves are starting to happen maybe in just the last couple of years, even in the private sector. So it's, it's probably not unusual that as yet government is not quite there, not quite thinking about it. But what you're saying is that it's coming. It's definitely
1: coming and it's coming extremely quickly as well because the data for large part is already there. It's just about having the systems in place between the marketing communications tools and the data that actually use the data in real time to actually drive those decisions and communication. Mm. Um, so I, I expect government communications to look extremely different in five years' time from the way it looks today Um, because today it's still largely, um, you know, either large campaign or small policy-based. It's structured on a uh, episodic way, not a continual basis. Um, Governments don't think about having lifelong cradle-to-grave relationships with their citizens when they actually do, and they don't think about how they're already collecting the data at each stage to actually better inform that individual as to what policies are affecting them what opportunities, what grants, what uh, benefits, what opportunities are actually available to them. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of scope in all, in the ability to be able to do that. Um, and that's coupled to things like nudge theory, like nudge theory uses data to some degree. Yeah. But, but this is using it in a much deeper, more integrated way at scale to really drive the
0: conversation a lot further. Mm. So... Explain that to me, what, you know, the fact that it will change. And, I, and I've got to say, I totally agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's absolutely fundamental. And I think you can see it already that where the potential is. But that doesn't mean that it won't be difficult to try to build the capability and the work processes and the structures and change some of the mindsets that exist in this world in order to capitalise on the on this gift that will be available. But when you say in five years' time things will look differently, what do you see as sort of typical marketing slash comms? Although marketing and government, again, there's is, is a problem around that word in that government doesn't think that it does marketing when it actually does, but let's not get into that uh, – but what does that typical team look like or start to look like for you in terms of the balance, you know, from research to data science to integration with the ICT teams who have got generally their hands on the, you know, the levers of the, of the technology side feeding back into the storytellers? How do you see all that coming together? And is Accenture doing some thinking about what that might look like?
1: Yeah, what we're already seeing, and I I think this is becoming more and more accepted, um, is a shift towards more of those multifunctional teams where it's not made up of a group of people all with the same skills who sit in the same group and basically churn out content for another group in the organisation who then takes it to the next level. It's more around putting together agile, uh, very iterative teams who are able to Uh, manage the process end-to-end within the scope of their capabilities. So within that, you're integrating IT people, data people, comms people um, and policy people and you're having them work together and they might own a policy over a four-year period and basically take ownership for that policy and totally how it's executed, um, how it's communicated and the outcomes um, of that policy over that time, and think of it more as managing a policy as a product, rather than thinking of it managing it um, via these groups of disconnected teams who each sort of form one stage in a production line.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a radical transformation, isn't it? You know, mm. and mindset really in digital transformation is a huge part of it. So, how do you start to get this? sort of joined up thinking happening. How, how do you start to make the change such that people are starting to see the benefit or citizens are starting to see the benefit and indeed politicians are starting yeah. to see the benefit because their policies or their programs are being better and more effectively explained to people as to why they've taken decisions that they have?
1: Yeah, I, I think we're seeing the embryonic stage of it now with a lot of the work that the Dual Transformation Agency has been fostering. Um, and I think in terms of the way they're they're pulling teams together to say what is the specific outcome, and then what are the the products and services and communications that need to come together to help achieve that outcome, they're doing a lot more of that around multifunctional teams. The ATO has been running a number of agile teams in this sort of sense for quite some time now. DHS is doing it. Um, Other agencies are working on it as well. And it's not all the way there yet. uh, It still sits within a far more rigid structure um, with a lot of checks and balances that, that don't quite fit the, the major agile iterative approach. But more and more we're seeing the people who are working in that space gradually working their way up the tree. Yeah. Um, and I think in a lot of senses this is this is this has happened with digital as well over the last 10 years. And I think it was about um, it was about 12 years ago now I said that within 10 years, Um, Every communications professional in government would need to have to understand digital as a native part of their job and I think we're pretty well there now. Yes. If you actually look at it, there is no one in government comms who doesn't understand enough about digital to include it as part of their campaign strategy and as part of their communications. We're in a lot earlier stages in terms of multifunctional teams and and that use of data and agility to basically be able to iterate those communication solutions, yeah. but we're probably about three years into it so far. Yeah. So I think in, in the next five or so years, we're going to see that move to the majority of teams um, and far more flexible resource pools who basically get pulled into a multifunctional team to work on a policy for a period of six months, a year, two years, to work with policy uh, and uh, IT and data um, colleagues, to basically do the full product ownership
0: process for that actual policy. Mm. In terms of the ICT and the integration of, you know, marketing technology into, you know, the stack, the technology stacks that government have. What's you? What are you seeing around that? Are you seeing that there is? greater use of technology in the sort of marketing automation, marketing technology space? Um
1: There is a little bit around the fringes. Like in government, has been very light in terms of bringing in the marketing automation systems. Very few government agencies can even do A-B testing on their websites and basically present two different views to two different cohorts and then analyse which one actually performs better and then adopt that. Even though there are products on the market that allow you to do that out of the box today quite simply, with just minimum configuration. Um, But that's still a real challenge for government agencies. And I think this is partially because we have such a mature uh, and developed uh, government. Um, They have a lot of legacy software and legacy positions that, have been dragging along behind them. They're gradually being swapped out, but that takes time and it costs quite a bit in capital costs to do that. And that's the lag effect that we're seeing in technology. Mm. Um, I've worked with organisations who are 10 years or more behind in their technology, and it really has gotten to the point where that constrains them to a large degree. Um, And I think in terms of government IT, there are a number of areas that have struggled to bring themselves up to speed, though I think a lot of government agencies today have have gotten over a big part of that hump and are far more modern in the way they run a lot of their technology, if not all of it. Um, but technology is kind of splitting into two streams. One is that kind of that still that big fixed system side of things where they need the the infrastructure level systems, the, the highways um, and the main roads that run the guts of an organisation, such as a HR, finance and those sort of things. And the other side is the digital stream, where you're looking at small, modular, app-based solutions that Mm. you basically pull bits together from... Different software packages from different web-based, some, some own design work as well, um, and a lot of open source in the mix. And then you just swap out modules as you move forward to continue to improve and add capability. And I think that split in technology is just happening now. Um, So we're starting to see the tensions emerging back in IT teams between the teams that are running the the fixed infrastructure and the teams that are trying to run the digital infrastructure Mm. because they need to run in different ways and with different approaches. Um, And if you're having an update to a system once every six months, it's very different to if you're releasing new features every two weeks. Mm. And we're starting to see the tension between
0: that you know, that sort of mix of technologies at the moment. Now, you've articulated a very clear picture to the future, but if you're someone who works in government communications at the moment, what advice do, do you have for someone who is looking into this future, seeing it, it's clear, it's coming, we know it's already happening, how can they best prepare themselves to be of most value in this space and what are the real skills that they need to bring to the to the table, because perhaps if they're in a, a a multifunction team, perhaps it's not the policy end of it, it's not the ICT end of it. They don't have to be uh, expert in data, but what what are the skills that they can bring to the table that will be of most value in this you know new future? Yeah, well, I think all the traditional
1: comms skills continue to be very, very important. Um, The art of storytelling, the ability to actually communicate clearly to people is absolutely critical and, in my opinion, underpins everything government does. Like Government cannot succeed in any kind of policy initiative if it doesn't communicate it well and manage the change program well. Um, ten years ago, I would have said the best thing comms people needed to learn was the digital side. Today, I think it's in the change and the data side. Um, it really needs to have a working understanding of how to leverage data to improve communications outcomes. Um, And that's gonna become increasingly important. And yes, you'll have certain level of data experts who can set up the systems and advise, but it's gonna be the comms people who day to day are looking at the the numbers, who are using the automated tools um, that are making their own decisions on how to shape the comms. And they need someone with a communications background to be able to look at those things and say, did the AI get it right? Or is this something that's going to cause some sort of risk to the agency? Mm. Um, and we're starting to move into the realm where the humans are going to be critical for fact-checking the computers mm. to make sure that they've actually got human mindsets right. Um, and the other part of it is to manage that change process, um, to manage that at every point in time, these things are Evidencing larger and larger changes to the way people behave, the way they interact with government, the way they interact with each other. And so change is increasingly vital as it becomes faster. Um, So understanding how to manage that change, how to cushion people through, because people are working at the same pace that we worked 100 years ago. And what's changing around us, whether it's the the technological environment or the policy environment, is changing three or four times faster, at least.
0: Mm. Massively exciting, isn't it? Like it, it, really is a. It's new. It's different. Change is difficult, and for for many people, you look at it and it's, you know, there's part of you that goes, oh, you know, how do I keep up? But at the same time, it's sort of, to me anyway, uh, signals are an even greater importance, um, as you've just articulated, for those traditional communications people skills, I suppose, Let, you know, let's call them the softer skills, to be embedded into this this new technologically driven joined-up system because, really, we're in the people game at the end of the day. People are still going to be people. Yes, they're going to be impacted by technology, but there is such a key role, as you, you, you've outlined. So are you excited by it all? Oh, I, I'm tremendously excited by it all, and I'm also scared by it as well.
1: Because, um, what, what, what are you scared of? Right? <laughs> well, as, as, as I'll a, go and get you another cup of tea. <laughs> as, as a pioneer in this space. <laughs> Uh, My heyday was 25 years ago. Mm. So if you look at today at the landscape of the the, the professionals who are uh, looking after the social media and the SEM and the SEO and the content Mm. and the marketing automation and all of those sort of skills today, uh, 25 years ago, they were all the one skill. They were all the one skill set and you did everything sort of like um, the notion of the, of the, the renaissance person yeah. a couple of hundred years ago who knew everything about everything <laughs> because science was so small at the time. Yeah. Um, and today it has uh, – the whole digital world has specialised so much mm. and I don't fit into any of those specialties anymore. Right. Which, which makes me almost useless in that regard. <laughs> um, it means my best bet is to actually help people to – bring all of those specialties together yes. and actually use them to deliver the outcomes you're trying to use. <laughs> yeah. So I work far more on, on how do you actually use all these specialties to deliver the same outcome yeah. where previously you'd have one person with those skills doing everything. Yeah. Um, and I think with where we're going with data, we're going to see the same sort of fragmentation. I think for comms people, this is going to add a whole new set of of. Common skills to the mix, as to um, as to how people operate within that data and change context, um, and their skill sets. Like I'm not even sure what some of those roles are going to be, mm. um, but you're looking at, at people who uh, spend most of their time working with machines rather than with humans, but in educating the machines. To be able to communicate with humans uh, more effectively. So it's a different sort of skill set to communicating with humans. You have to know how to educate machines to do that role. Mm. Um, and that's going to be very interesting to see how that sort of skill set emerges. And we're seeing it today with the introduction of chatbots, like five or six government agencies at a federal level and a number of state and local level have introduced chatbots to basically provide information to citizens. But how do you train those chatbots? How do you teach them to interact in a normal human manner? Um, and then how do you deal with that in the face of some of the things like Google's products that's it? Unveiled where it will, t- where an AI will talk with you on the phone and it will have the various sounds that humans make during the conversation so that it sounds completely natural. Mm. You know, what actually happens when you cross that uncanny divide and you suddenly have machines that are interacting
0: with humans in the same way humans interact with humans? It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. And I look forward to, uh, um, a podcast in another 25 years where we can probably <laughs> dial it up and see how right we were. But I I don't know. I think it's pretty clear now. I think it's pretty clear. Uh, I don't – well, sorry. I, I think it's clear. I don't think, it, the, the you know, the fidelity of just exactly what those roles are, responsibilities, how do you bring teams together, how do these um, – the, the point you raise around specialisation is absolutely right, and we're seeing that on a daily basis that, you know, It's now about bringing joined-up teams together as opposed to thinking – Say for example, an agency like ours that we can do it all. It's like forget mm-hmm. it. You can't. You can't even get close. So you've got to pick a lane and get into that lane and be very good in a particular lane and know where the other people are. So as when you want to travel together, you can travel as a group. So well, even
1: even with Accenture, which is almost half a million people globally, and we work in a, a little lot bit of bigger realms, than us. We're <laughs> a little bit little bit bigger than content <laughs> Group, but exactly the same challenge. In yeah. that we work a lot with a lot of small companies who are very. Specialise in what they do because again, we can't bring to bear no. all of that expertise in that unified way, and we know that. And we work actively with other groups, so we're very, very um, active in, in working with organisations who are specialists in particular areas to bring the best, uh, the best into information, the best skills and talent to our government clients and other clients to ensure that they get the best outcomes. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think, the, well, and and I think that's, an, you know, Chatbots is another podcast. That's another podcast. But for today, we might leave it at that because we could talk forever and ever as we often do when we do catch up. So um, thanks to you, uh, Craig, for coming in. That's a really uh, thought-provoking uh, before we started the conversation, it was quite interesting. I said, not quite sure where this is going to go. Um, and we really didn't plan what we we're going to talk about. But I think that's a, a fascinating conversation for people to take away and to start to unpick and start to think in your team, when you go back to work today, how is – if this is the reality, if this is what's coming, where can you position yourself and where can you position the people who work with you to be in this space? And I think it gets to the point of um, – It's very simple advice and I often give it, but get up out of your desk and go and walk around and go and start talking to people. Start joining up the capabilities that are there because I do think that that is that siloed mentality while it's being broken down, why technology is going to come and smash it to pieces. Why don't you be the one who leads the charge and bring some of these multifunctional teams together. Start to work out how does it best work in your context because everybody, every organisation is going to be different. You've got, Different challenges. You've got different ministers. You've got different bureaucrats. You've got different challenges. You've got different regulators. You've got it's all going to be different. So, what's going to work for you? So, take the that mix, that bag of advice and guidance that's just been given to you, and see how it might work for you because it's an exciting time. We're all going to be in it together so let's uh, let's have some fun doing it along the way. So thanks to Craig Tomler for coming in once again and thanks to you for the audience for coming back this week again. Great conversation this week. I'll be back at the same time in two weeks with another fascinating guest here on GovComs but for the moment it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.